M&K Talk YA now presents Carve the Mark, Part 1, by Veronica Roth. to another episode of M&K Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this week we started a new book called Carve the Mark by Veronica Roth and we read up to chapter 20. Oh, I read chapter 20. Oh, you read chapter 20? Well, don't say anything that happened there. (laughs) Nothing happens in chapter 20. (laughs) Oh, shoot. (laughs) We've never done that before. I know, this is the first time we've we've messed up. I messed up. Or possibly I messed up, but since you you read further, then you can't talk about it. So it's like you messed up regardless. Nope. (laughs) Your text says chapter 20. And for some reason, I was like, in my mind, I was like, read chapter 20. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. Well, I don't know where your point was, but it was actually kind of a good point because um, just for your memory, too, this is right after Akos has been tortured by Sierra's brother. What's his name again? Ryzek. Isaac and she takes him back to their apartment and kisses him at the very end of this chapter. Oh, that's right, that's right. Because her brother realized that he could use Echos as um, a tool to get her to obey him. Yeah, basically she Ugh. finally stood up to him and said, I'm not going to be your weapon whenever you want me to be. And he was like, okay, that's fine. I'll just torture this boy. But what if I do this? Yeah. I know, that was awful. So, yeah. I mean, you saw it coming, right? Yeah, you did. I actually was surprised it took that long, but... Yeah. Yeah. But here we are. Okay. So let's start at the beginning and not talk about Chapter 20. Okay. So should we even go back? So Veronica Roth, this is her first book after the Divergent series. Yes, and we haven't read anything by Veronica Roth yet. For the podcast. In our lives, we right. have. <laughs> just, just to clarify. We, we, we read Divergent. <laughs> we went to the movie in costume. We did the whole thing. We may have gone to the set. I went to the... Um, oh, that's right. In Chicago, you went to the... Um, Ferris, Ferris wheel, wheel scene, scene when they had done the um, Navy Pier. They made it look like it was falling apart. Mm-hmm. And I was like taking pictures by it. That was pretty, pretty cool. exciting stuff. I also really liked our fake faction tattoos that we got for the premiere of the film. Yeah. my Wait, have I told you? My sister's like really excited to meet you well not to meet you but to meet chad at the wedding but she's i think it's because she thinks you're so cool after we went and did the movie thing aaron no megan didn't megan go with us yeah that's i was like i met megan i mean so she's really excited to meet your husband but i think especially because like she thinks you're so cool after that experience oh my gosh (laughs) because i brought fake faction tattoos and made everyone put them on in the bathroom i mean i'm just saying there was a group of like middle school girls who i think wanted to take pictures with us i'm just gonna say that it might have been wrong but that was my they were super into our tattoos (laughs) (laughs) oh god we're so cool we are so cool all right so i didn't really read anything about veronica roth to prepare did you i guess i didn't read a ton either I know she's from Northwestern. That's a very cool fun fact. And she still lives in Chicago. Oh, do you think we'll see her? I'll see her. You might. <laughs> I don't I don't live here. <laughs> I'll probably see her. I should keep my eyes open for her. 
yeah, it's it's that's what I've always said. Like the level of famous I would love to be would be like author famous, where people wouldn't necessarily recognize you on the street, but you could like name drop. Totally. If you wanted, you know, like live your normal life without the paparazzi for the most part, but then like when you needed to be famous, you just show your ID. <laughs> or just go to a book signing and all of your fans are there. <laughs> that's true. I'm kind of disappointed. We both looked up her book tour and neither Chicago nor Atlanta were on it. I know. I was shocked she didn't come to Chicago because you'd think it'd be really easy since she lives here. And I've never met her before, so I was really looking forward to it. I looked up a couple of interviews, but I didn't read a ton. But one of the things I saw, and I let you know afterwards, I guess when Carve the Mark was originally coming out, and it was on my birthday, which is cool, she, mm-hmm. if you ordered, if you pre-ordered it, or if you ordered it the day it came out, you would get a free ebook, which was a follow-up to the Divergent series five years after the end of the last book. Oh, and like I was an epilogue? Like, what? Yeah, how did I not know the short story existed five years later? So I spent a lot of time going down a rabbit hole trying to find the We Can Be Mended epilogue to the Divergent series. Did you read it? I didn't actually read it, but I read about it. And then I read a little bit about how she was trying to switch gender roles with these two characters. So, you know, making Akos more of the sensitive one and Sierra more of the oh like the or like the well I guess they're both fighters they're both warriors right yeah but they do have a very different kind of way in which they fight and stuff right I mean and I think Sierra lacks some of that empathy that seems really obvious in Echo's initially like I think she's been built like she's growing into that more but Mm -hmm. I I would say like he was naturally more of a you know sensitive empathetic kind of person okay so I read a little bit about the controversy behind the book. Yeah, okay. You sent me the first article I saw about that, so why don't you talk about that? I read about the controversy before I started reading the book, and the controversy was how she presents the idea of chronic pain as a gift. And, and she did say in an interview that she has a lot of friends who suffer from illnesses like fibromyalgia or endometriosis, um, things that cause like constant chronic pain, and she... That's kind of where she got the idea of Sira's power from. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can see right away that the problem is like presenting the idea of pain as a gift. I feel like people who experience chronic pain probably wouldn't see it like that. Yeah. And other people were saying like, you know, she herself doesn't experience this, these kind of conditions. So they were questioning, is it okay to appropriate the pain of others for your own gain? And I think that's where the heart of the controversy really comes down to. Because, I mean, if you think about, like, Lee Bardugo, she has osteonecrosis, right? Mm-hmm. And she used her own experience to influence the character of Kaz. Um, but in this case, it's the author appropriating the pain of others to create this character in, in her experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think it's okay to write for an author to write about experiences that aren't her own. Because otherwise... You, you know, so many authors would be limited by their own experiences. And I think to be a good writer, you should be able to write more than what you know. You know, they always say, like, write what you know. I think if you're a good writer, you should be able to do more than that. But I think you need to do it in a way that's respectful and very true to the actual experience. Yep. And I think she said, you know, she did say she consulted with her friends. She talked to her friends. She tried to include their voices to kind of get that honest interpretation of how pain feels. But also, like one or two people's opinions don't represent 
the feelings and opinions of everyone who suffers from chronic pain. So maybe they have a different perspective than other people. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting too because it sounds like she consulted her friends, but I'm not sure how much like research she did. Like I just didn't get a good sense of that from what I researched, like how much she actually like versus just hearing about a couple of people's experiences and what they chose to share with her versus like mm-hmm. doing actual like a deep dive research into it. I'm not really sure to what extent she did the latter, you know? I would hope she did. Yeah. And it's also, it's interesting because it is still like this, she's not picking an actual condition to write about. It's still this like fantastical. Yeah. It's like something that's caused by the current. Yeah. That we don't really understand even in this world, let alone. But, but I, I totally get, especially calling it a gift, which I also think is interesting. I'm like very curious about all these different current gifts and what they really mean. Is it just like a unique trait? Because I'm not even sure if they're all truly gifts like even the guy who doesn't feel any pain oh that's right you know he's like I have to set timers to know when I should eat I mean that doesn't sound like a gift either or Akos who is like cut out of this thing that connects everyone and everything yeah how isolating is that he's not part of the current at all yeah so I mean I'm also just kind of curious if we hadn't used the word gift if people would have reacted the same way probably to some extent yes that's not the only issue with it but um but even though we're using the word gift I don't think she's necessarily painting it as a blessing or you know as a positive like I think she's still addressing that while like her being in pain all day is misunderstood you know she doesn't have a way to treat or deal with it and like it's not in itself a positive thing I agree I don't think she paints it as something that um everyone wants to have or that you know is anything positive in her life because yeah. it's not like with the pain comes something else, you know, it's just, it is just pain. And also it's like pain is, it's so invisible. It's not like you have um, like a physical indicator of your suffering. And I think mm-hmm. that's also what's very frustrating is that you're, you're suffering inside and there's no external evidence of it. And so I think when that happens, people are more inclined to say, oh, you know, it's all in your head or, oh, you know, it can't be that bad. And and people tend to dismiss it. I mean, doctors dismiss it sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's even, so, you know, I've been dealing with some um, health issues that have been the main symptom I feel is pain. There's no, there's nothing that looks wrong with me. Like, I feel like I'm exactly the same, except sometimes I'm feel normal and sometimes I'm in extreme pain Mm -hmm. you know like just looking at me and it's even interesting when you're like talking to a doctor and they're like rank the pain on a scale of one to ten or something like that and it's like I don't know I don't know I think I have a really high tolerance for pain so I'm like when I'm saying a four but like it could be an eight or like it could be like I don't even know if (laughs) they say that like does that happen to my friend too um it well we had a a mishap that happened in Italy that resulted in a trip to the emergency room (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) He's fine. But um, he said that whenever they say on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 is not like the worst amount of pain you can imagine. 10 is the most pain you personally have ever experienced. Okay. And so he said like a lot of times people will say a lower number than they should just because they're imagining like the worst pain that could be possible in the entire universe, not what they personally have felt. Pain is, it's just weird because you can't. Well, it's hard to quantify. You don't know. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> Very insightful, Katie Bradford, I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, um, it's hard when it's when it's all internally and you can't express 
your the magnitude of your suffering really yeah it has to be incredibly frustrating well and then add on top the physical pain alone is you know i can't even imagine terrible but then because anyone who touches her experiences that pain and they can just avoid it by not touching her like her life has become so lonely and like devoid of human interaction or human mm-hmm. contact that that has its own mental effects impact yeah and also i mean i guess the other thing that I didn't read about this being a controversy, but I could see it being a controversy, is that there's this boy who comes along with the power to take away her pain. And it's kind of like the trope of, like, the savior that's coming to save the girl from her pain. And, like, that was very problematic for me. Like, she can't figure it out for herself. She needs a man. Yeah, and just, like, Mm -hmm. have to be reliant on not only someone else, but, you know, a man to, to make yourself feel better is kind of makes me feel a little icky. Although the one thing I really like about that is it hasn't actually really been the case because from the very beginning, he was trying to give her the power to help herself with the pain. Like, yes. Oh, that's right. She feels a different level of peace or relief from pain when he's physically touching her. But I feel like they both kind of recognized and worked on the fact that she, you know, here's another potion that actually will help with your pain. Mm -hmm let me teach you how to make it and like that that was sort of the basis of their relationship from the beginning I really did like that part that's a good way to start it because then at least you don't have to you you still get some independence you're not constantly tied to this person Uh, but it's still like a man who comes along with a solution you know it still doesn't make me feel great yep I'm also just I have so many questions about how people's current gift develop because remember that one doctor who was talking about it's like something like her personality molds it in these like extreme situations and we saw in both the protagonist's case their power developed in these you know pretty horrific experiences as children you know they they were like forced to grow up basically and develop these abilities but I'm I like have so many questions about this current gift and how it works what the rules are or whatever yeah because I hate how that doctor He said that the fact that she has pain and projects it suggests that she feels like she deserves it and that others deserve it. Yeah. Which is horrific. And then, and then that he tells her if she changes, the gift will too. So basically he was like, it's your fault. It's your own fault. Yeah. And she got this at age, but also he didn't know, I mean, not that this excuses it, but I'm curious with that or part of that perspective, but knowing what she went through that caused it, like what her brother did, mm-hmm. exchanging those memories and forcing her to experience that at the age of six or eight or yeah. something, I mean, some really crazy young age. Um, I wonder how that experience led to the development of her gift. Because the memory that he exchanged was him being forced to kill a man for the first time. Yeah, which is still horrific that his dad did that to sure. him. Sure. But the fact that he did that to his little sister, who's literally a kid, not just like, you know, your sister as an adult. I just, I can't even imagine. I can't either, but I also feel that on some level it is a bit of a human reaction because I think sometimes in not a very nice place within yourself, if you're suffering, you are not upset, but you're just aware that other people are not suffering. And I feel like, especially if you're, you know, a child or a very young teenager, like these siblings were, I could understand at that age saying, like, it's not fair that I'm suffering and you're not. 
so I want you to suffer. And share my pain. But isn't he, like, 10 or 12 years older than her? Like, he was an adult, basically. Oh, was he? A young adult. I think he's, like, 10 years older than her. Which I'm not, again, I'm not saying, like, I feel really, really bad for him. I just, like... I mean, it was a t- it was a really awful thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> it was a completely yeah. awful and an, an inex- inexcusable thing to do. I am so curious. His gift has actually inspired some of my research today. So oh. his ability to switch memories and how it's sort of influencing. Um, EI, how do you say Aisha? Aisha. Okay, Akos's brother. Aisha is becoming more and more like Ryzek as they're swapping memories you know, back and forth. So he's like remembering things that weren't his in the first place, basically, and taking on some of his mannerisms and and whatnot. And I'm just curious, the more that Ryzik has, because I I get the impression he has to exchange them, right? He can't just take or can he? No, he has to exchange them. So every person he's like, he's just been giving away so much of himself. I'm curious at what point he starts to to change into Asia. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Or just like to lose himself completely. And also like what a great idea. Not a great, but like what an interesting idea that you can, if you take enough of someone, you develop their power because your power is so intrinsically tied to your identity. Yeah. And I, but I just don't know if it'll work. Like, I, I mean, we'll have to keep reading. But so did you research how false memories develop? I did. Did you yeah. do the same thing? I did not. I did not. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I did like a bunch of research on memory in general, but um, false memories is part of what attracted me to it. But I found this one really interesting article about reasons why we forget people's names. <laughs> Please let me and know. And I'm terrible at names, so I, I was like, oh, I should read this. But I just thought this was really interesting. So here are kind of the four main reasons why we forget people's names. One is because names are arbitrary. So most words refer to something. So, you know, the word backpack, you can picture a backpack in your head. Mm. You hear the word Brad, and you might know four completely different Brads. <laughs> Could be anyone, yeah. Yeah, you don't know really anything about that person. Um, also, names don't have synonyms. So part of how your memory works is if it can't find the exact word that it wants in a pinch, it'll find something similar, or it can, you know, use language to try to substitute things to still get the point across, but there aren't fair synonyms for names there's no substitute for it so that makes it harder to remember them um it's just like forgetting a name is the same as forgetting any other word but the strategies we use to fill in the gaps for other words tend to fail when it comes to names because of the other things that we have going on the other problem with names is you can have them not just speaking them but remembering them you can like mix up names in your head like if someone's telling you a story about you know our friend lauren and i'm telling you this story but for some reason when i said lauren you were thinking alicia and even though you heard Lauren, so you're like imagining my story with Alicia in your mind and then you realize it was Lauren and you have to like go back through your memory and like replace okay. it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, there was this lab test done where they gave participants information about a famous person and then they were trying to like ask for the person's name or what they're known for or something. So one question might be like, which British actor portrayed Harry Potter in the film series? Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. Or they might ask, like, how many animals did Moses take on the ark? Oh, gosh. A, h- a thousand? And you'd be like, two of each kind. Oh. <laughs> or something. A thousand. But the funny thing was, when I just asked that question, you immediately were thinking Moses and the ark, but really it's Noah and the ark. Oh, <laughs> you're right. And this this is called the Moses illusion. And so... We, <laughs> I fell for it. We won't <laughs> mix up every kind of name that same way but because both Moses and Noah tend to be associated as like oh they're both people from the Old Testament 
you know, they're religious leaders. One of them led Israelites. One of them led animals. You know, like, just, like, there's a lot of parallels or whatever. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will just, like, overlook that part and answer the question. And you'll, you'll see the same thing. Like, maybe when you're reading a recipe, you see teaspoon, but you use a tablespoon. Or, like, there's little things where this also happens. But I guess in, in names, <laughs> it's kind of common. So I just, I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> And it's, it's just kind of funny how, yeah, words are really just kind of arbitrary. Especially names, too. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah. names. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> they're, just, they're just words. So it was kind of interesting. And that's also, um, I was thinking about Akos's name and how we learned it's actually Ooh, a Shotet name. Shotet origin and that um, the Shotet blood allows someone to speak the language. I love that idea. First, I thought that was his current gift displaying itself when he was fluent, but now learning that it's like something carried on in their genetic makeup. I'm very curious to hear more about his mom and his background and all of that. Yeah, well, we we get that backstory about how the Shotet were um, invaded like years and years ago, and they... Um, the thu- Thuves, is that how we're calling them? The Thuves and the Shotets? Yep. I don't know. And the th- it sounds like a weird word. The th- th- I, I know. We know. need a pronunciation guide in this one. <laughs> we really need it, too. Um, yeah. So they stole the Shotet children when they were on a sojourn and carried them off. And so I wonder, I was wondering the entire time if Akos was from one of those children, like descendant from one of those children who were kidnapped years and years ago. And then it's so, so ironic because he was kidnapped then back from the Thuves, and now he's living with the Shotets. So it's like, it's almost like he's had a dual kidnapping. Yeah, and I'm curious because the, I'm assuming that the Thuves legend is different than the Shotet's legend mm-hmm. in terms of who started it. Sure. So we've heard a little bit about the Shotet's attack on his grandma or something like that. But like, I'm kind of curious to hear their legends back and understand more about where this animosity between these two groups really came from on both sides not just not just one one yeah but I'm, I mean I'm, how do you feel about his mom right now because we are led to believe well I mean she's an oracle so we know that she can see the future I don't we don't really know how that works or what you can predict or what you can't but we're led to believe that she would have definitely known that her husband was going to be killed and her kids were going to be kidnapped right and especially since she, I mean they say that every for the families that are fate favored when a child's born, their fate becomes instantly known to every oracle at the same time. Yeah. And all of her children are fate-favored, and they all... And um, Akos was that he would spend a lifetime in service... Or he would die in service to a Shotet family, right? Yep. Um, and so she knew that somehow he was going to be taken by the Shotets or go over to their side. So she had that bit of information, and then... Yeah, you're assuming that if she's an oracle, she would have been able to foresee this happening. And not only did she not warn her family, she wasn't even there for it. Like, she didn't even show up to fight. She just left. And I thought she was dead at first. Yeah, I thought she was the oracle. They that killed herself. Killed herself. Yep, me too. Um, but yeah, we don't even know. Like, she didn't even give them enough knowledge to... Like, he didn't even know his gift, right? When he left? No, when he got kidnapped. no, no, no. Like, even just knowing that, I mean the day before or I don't know I feel like she was she knew even the night before because wasn't she like telling him about Sierra and her brother a little bit like saying that they were and like and that everyone was gonna look at you I feel like she was trying to prepare him in some ways but it's like come on mom so I have a theory okay let me hear it so (laughs) 
Do you remember later in the book, Ryzek is told by Asia, who is now a rising oracle, he's told that there's going to be a woman who is Letty, the daughter of Uzel, the uh, man who they forced Syrah to kill. Mm -hmm. So he foretold that Letty would announce Ryzek's fate publicly. And uh, Ryzek's fate was to fall at the hands of their enemies. Yep. Um, to a, gosh, I can't remember the name of that family. It he starts with a B. A, a, <laughs> a B word. <laughs> there are so many fates and there are so many gifts. I can't keep them straight. Okay, Beneset. Beneset, Ryzek's yep. fate is to fall to the family Beneset. Um, and so he's basically destined to fail their father. And that fate, like, obviously you want to keep that fate a secret. And so Asia says there's going to be a woman who is going to announce your fate publicly in front of everyone. But he also says it would be in your best interest to let this happen. So he foresees it, but he allows it to play out because then he uses, remember, he uses Lady's words and says... Um, to have the challenge he, he with Sierra. Yeah. yeah, and like to make her a traitor. And then he's, he makes her challenge Sierra in the arena and forces Sarah to use her gift yeah yeah so he makes her seem like a very untrustworthy person who's just spouting nonsense and that's a mm -hmm. great way to have your fate not be believed yep well and they've done all this work to like prevent the I guess the government like announce everyone's fates but like the Shotet people can only read the Shotet language or whatever and I don't just like all the crazy stuff they've done to like limit the spread of knowledge even though they're this migrating group of people that right. interacts with all these other planets is kind of crazy to me so okay so here's my theory so I okay. think <laughs> tying this all back around I think that perhaps Akos's mother foresaw that this attack was going to happen on her family but for some reason she's deciding to let it play out because she somehow knows there's going to be a long con where this end game is is going to require her children being kidnapped, her husband dying, and um, letting Akos's fate play out to die at, in the service of the Shotet family. So I feel like she, she can see the far end, and she knows that a lot of horrible stuff has to happen in between for a good consequence or a good outcome. That's my theory. Because otherwise, mm -hmm. she would be just a terrible person. Yeah, it's just so... I know. I mean, we have to get more information. So I'm just curious to see what it is because I'm kind of on the same page of you. Like, there's no way she's just selfish. No. And, right? Like, I mean, there has to be more to this story. But I'm. Especially since she, like, sets it up where she's training Akos in the beginning to use the hush flowers and to teach him how to create um, these antidotes where it's like, this is what you do to poison someone. Keep that in your mind. Here's what you do to make a sleeping potion. Like, she's definitely training him for some greater purpose. So here's my other piece of that theory. Do you so we know that the the line who kills what is it the Beneset line? No, the what we just said it. Beneset. The Beneset line. We know that there's two children, right? One who, and we don't know their full identity, but we also at the beginning, Ori, we found out that she had a fate that was announced, and we don't know her, who her real parents are because she's living with her aunt. So I'm curious. Oh, do you think she's the Beneset family? I think she is. I think, that would be interesting. I think she'll come back around somehow and be related to that prediction. Because they learned that the um, or the fate of the second Beneset child will be to rule Thuv, and she will be Ryzek's undoing. And that's why he wants to stop mm -hmm. her. Yeah. Yep. Stop her sooner rather than later. Oof. Yep. So that's my prediction. 
That's a good prediction. Two good predictions. It's like we're oracles, kind of. <laughs> so I actually researched oracles. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Tell me more. So, because I really liked the idea of, in this world, well, we should talk about more about world building after this, but I liked that there's always three oracles in the on every or per in planet. every planet per planet yep. mm-hmm. and it's an oracle rising an oracle sitting and an oracle falling mm-hmm. so one coming into their power one actively like creating raining. prophecies yep. mm-hmm. and then a third whose power is waning and so i just researched famous oracles <laughs> <laughs> um let me open this okay so i guess the most famous oracle that a lot of people think of is the oracle of Delphi or the Pythia and the Pythia was the name of the high priestess of the temple of Apollo at Delphi okay and they considered it like a form of divination inspired by the gods she was there I mean there were multiple oracles it wasn't just one (laughs) woman this entire time but they were really influential throughout um, Greek culture and it was kind of interesting because it was a woman and she was essentially the highest authority religiously and civically in ancient Greece and she would answer questions posed to her by everyone from kings, philosophers commoners, anyone cool um, so there were a couple <laughs> like famous interactions that people had with uh, the Pythia <laughs> and some of them were actually pretty funny so I guess the the thing about prophecies is they're often worded purposely ambiguously, so they can cover all contingencies. And so <clears throat> one thing one of the interactions that happened was Croesus, the king of Lydia, came to the Oracle of Delphi, and there's like a whole process that you have to go to in order to um, like stand before the Oracle and receive a prophecy. How do they know who the next Oracle is? Oh, that's a good question. I honestly don't know. I mean, obviously there's different types of portrayals of this too. Because like if you remember the movie 300, she's, they're portrayed as essentially slaves. So I'm really not sure how they, how they pick the Oracle. I should have looked into that. But um, one thing I did learn was part of the ritual was the women breathed in this, not incense, but like this gas almost. And it was part of the, like the cleansing ritual. And modern geologists recently found out that where that area was there were fissures fissures in the earth that emitted ethylene gas so essentially when the women inhaled this gas they became drugged and that's why a lot of times they would speak in tongues and they would say these strange things so one theory is that they were actually drugged yeah i bet that makes sense it really does um especially if it's like hallucinogens or something sure exactly yep um, okay, so Croesus, he wanted to test all of the oracles of the world to discover which had the most accurate prophecies. So he <laughs> sent emissaries to seven cities and asked all the oracles there on the same day what the king was doing at the very moment. And he said the oracle at Delphi was the most accurate, and she reported that the king was making a lamb and tortoise stew. And so he um, decided to use her as his oracle, and he would consult her often when making decisions. And I guess he consulted her before, before like, launching this great attack. And she said, if you cross the river, a great empire will be destroyed. (laughs) And so he interpreted it, thinking that, like, I'm I'm going to win. But it was his (laughs) own empire that was actually destroyed. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it's kind of like the way these things are worded, it can be ambiguous about who's actually winning. And, and I'm sure they did that purposefully just so they could always say like, well, you just interpreted it the wrong way. You know, it wasn't the oracle that was wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard what you wanted to hear, but not what I said. Um, she also said, oh, this is cool. So the Pythia made more than 500 predictions um, that leaders would believe to the letter. So <laughs> in 67 AD, she said to Emperor Nero, the number 73 marks the hour of your downfall. And he didn't like this answer, so he buried the Pythia alive. Huh. And he always thought that he would die at the age of 73, but he actually ended up committing suicide at the age of 30 after a revolt by um, Galba, Emperor Galba, and he was 73 years old at the time. Interesting. So, like, I don't know. It's kind of interesting how some of these prophecies come to be. But then, oh, my gosh, I looked up so many oracles and all of their strange predictions. Um, So, see... Um, Caesar had a soothsayer or like um, an oracle that he consulted and that was the one who famously said beware the Ides of March yep 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 <laughs> and I guess I didn't know this but according to legend when the Ides of March came and were nearly gone he ran into this seer this oracle on his way to the theater of Pompeii and he said to the oracle um, so the Ides of March are here and nothing has happened don't you feel like an idiot and the oracle basically said, yeah, the Ides of March have come, but they are not gone. And as soon as Caesar arrived at the theater of Pompeii was when he was stabbed 23 times. So Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's like the ultimate, you know, just wait, just wait and see kind of you like. You think you know everything, but you really don't. Yeah. yeah. Like, you'll eat your words kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I was researching Nostradamus, who, if you watch Rain... <laughs> Which I know you do. Yeah, I was just, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Catherine de Medici. (laughs) So, okay, so Nostradamus has been credited with accurately predicting the bombing of Hiroshima, the Space Shuttle Challenger accident in 1986, the French Revolution, the Apollo moon landing, the death of Princess Diana, and both world wars. Wow. Right, but... Anything good? Do you predict anything good? Oh, God, I hope so. (laughs) I mean, he could have predicted like Harry Potter or something (laughs) great. Something wonderful. (laughs) Something we really needed. (laughs) Um, So I guess he was the author of the prophecies and he produced 942 quatrains, so four-line poems that rhyme, and they all contained predictions for the future. So I read some of his predictions just to see how closely the words tied into the actual events. Yeah. So... I guess the one that he's most famous for is predicting the death of Henry II. Okay. So the prediction was, the young lion will overcome the older one on the field of combat in a single battle. He will pierce his eyes through a golden cage. Two wounds made one, then he dies a cruel death. So I'm sure it rhymes in his language. (laughs) (laughs) So how did Henry II die again? So in the summer of 1559, Henry II of France was lined up to joust Um, Gabriel, the Comte de de Montgomery, the Count of Montgomery, who was six years his his junior. So Henry, older lion, Gabriel, young lion. And the tournament was held up to celebrate the wedding of the king's daughter. So I guess in the final rounds, Montgomery's lance tilted up, burst through the king's visor, and splintered. So pierced his eyes through a golden cage. That kind of makes sense. Yep. 
I'm remembering this from Rain now, I think. So. Oh, is that? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Because <laughs> that's in the first season when King Henry, um, well, let's not spoil things. But we both know what happens. <laughs> well, if it's history, if it's real history. Sure, I guess. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's like watching Titanic for the first time. Okay, so then they said the king was bleeding but remained conscious and was able to walk around a little bit. And But then it said splinters from the lance had entered the king's eye, throat, and temple. So two wounds made one. And then he um, suffered really bad pain, seizures, partial paralysis, um, and then died in his bed 11 days later. So he dies a cruel death. That sounds like a terrible way to yeah go. I know, right? With a sliver of wood in your eye? Mm. Mm. I'm already, par- you know, I'm afraid of pencils being in my eye. This is like know, literally the last thing I want to hear. <laughs> so, okay, the other one was he predicted the French Revolution. Uh-huh. Um, okay, his prediction was, from the enslaved populace, songs, chants, and demands, while princes and lords are held captive in prisons, these will in the future, by headless idiots, be received as divine prayers. Huh. So, I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Like, the French Revolution overthrew the monarchy, threw the king in, in jail, and then... Yep. Um, and the guillotine. They in the in the guillotine, yeah. Yep. So that sounds pretty accurate. I guess how do you pre- how do you predict like spaceships and nuclear bombs and stuff like that? Okay, I'll read you the nuclear bomb one. Okay. Oh, I don't have that one. <laughs> I have the one about his prediction of the rise of Hitler. <laughs> okay, let's hear that. Okay. Um from the depths of west of Europe, a young child will be born of poor people. He who by his tongue will seduce a great troop. His fame will increase towards the realm of the east. Beasts ferocious with hunger cross the rivers. The greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. Into a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. So Hister, people have been like, oh, it's so close to Hitler. But really Hister was um, the term that people used for the Danube River. So... Okay. Don't look too much into that. But still, I mean, he was born in Austria, which is in Western Europe, and he did rise in power yep. due to being a great orator. You know, his tongue will seduce a great troop. So there's parts of it that are... Yeah, it's all, it is interesting, though. Like, if you made enough predictions that were vague enough a long time ago and enough history has happened, like, odds are some of them are going to be applicable to something that happened, right? Sure. <laughs> You can make, it's like a horoscope. It's like a horoscope. You can make anything yeah. tie into what you want it to be. There's like this whole thing where um, there was a professor who wrote everyone a horoscope and gave it to them and then said, do you feel like the horoscope accurately represents who you are? And everyone was like, oh my God, yes. Like, it's so me. And it was the same horoscope on every piece of paper. <laughs> so it's like. Uh, I yeah. love that stuff I, though. <laughs> Oh, me too. Like, take it with a grain of salt, but also it's still fun to read. <laughs> so I really liked just kind of reading about some of his predictions. I should have recorded more, but... No, those are so cool. That's so interesting. I Oh, here's the, here, here's the one from Hiroshima. Okay. Um, okay. Near the gates and within two cities, there will be scourges, the like of which was never seen. Famine within plague, people put out by steel crying to the great immortal god for relief. Wow. So yeah, 
like within two cities, scourges, which have never been seen. Yeah, but it could apply to so many other things, you know? Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel bad if he accurately predicted all these things. Just like the dreams he must have been having must have all been pretty bad. Yeah. Or whatever, like, or dreams, whatever it is where you have your oracle visions come to you. But And also, like, I don't know, it also puts you in danger. Like, Nero, who didn't like his answer and buried her alive, there are other... Yeah, shoot, people who shoot the messenger, it's like, sorry, I'm just telling you what's sure. going to happen. I don't control it or decide it. <laughs> and there's tons of examples of people turning on the oracles because they received prophecies they didn't want to hear. Well, I mean, that's even what's going on in this book a little bit, because even though, I guess, the fate families or whatever that what are they called the fate found the fate favored fate, Ooh, favored families fan name fan Ooh, name yeah okay in the first half <laughs> of the first book we're killing it it's a record the fate favored families the reason they say their fate is like sealed it does sound like you know the future isn't set and you it's still like a free choice kind of world except that for those people it's like every version of reality still ends in the same place or still gets to a certain place so that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Is there any way around it? Is it really, is it like 99.9% of every situation you end up in that place? Or is it mm-hmm. 100% and he's just going to create his own demise by trying to stop his demise? <laughs> well, yeah. Don't you feel like in everything we've learned, nothing good happens when you try to intervene with fate? Yeah, nothing good happens. And nothing good happens when you try to control the way you're country or your people the way he's trying to control them and intimidating by fear and torturing your little sister and yeah no he's forcing her to do things she doesn't want to do he's got bad news coming his way i guess that's the one thing i have to say because like i'm enjoying this book so far i think the um the circumstances of of the world building are really unique like i love the idea that there's different planets um, I love the idea of the the hush flowers that mm-hmm. are used in different ways, and some people worship them, and some people won't use them at all because they interrupt the current. The idea of the current is so cool about you know how it unites everyone. Yep. Um, even like the feather grass that like creates hallucinations, and that's what divides the yep. two people, the Shotet and the Thubes. I love all that, but I wish and I hope that the book becomes a little bit more than what it is right now because right now we just have like this one bad guy who's doing nothing right and we have two other characters who are essentially starting to rise against him and it's becoming pretty clear that Sira is like joining the renegades now and she's trying to find the people who are rising up against him yeah it'll be I'll be curious to see how far she takes it though will she actually be able to betray her brother or not but I think, I, I feel like we're seeing stuff in the background, though, like even um, just like the news clips we're catching and stuff and the comments that have been made, even at the beginning with the government releasing the the fates of all the uh, kids mm-hmm. and stuff, like I feel like there is a larger kind of thing going on politically in this world right now. And so I'm curious when our little story kind of catches up to this bigger story or pl- or plays an active role in this big story piece and even his fate which we're trying to avoid like we don't even know we we don't even know who the benefits are yet it's still you're right it's still kind of a very small piece of the world that we're living in and I'm excited to see it expand me too and I because so far it's kind of been kind of a narrow predictable story mm-hmm. and I want it to be more than that yep 
I agree. And I'm really hopeful that it will be. So this is completely off topic. Okay. Okay, well, I was just looking at some more of my research. So I was looking, I watched this TED Talk by Elizabeth Loftus, who is, she does research on memory or more important, false memories. Okay. And it kind of like freaked me out. You know how one of my fears, one of my other fears besides pencils to the eye is going to jail for something I didn't do? Mm-hmm. Like one of the main things that they talk about with false memories is false witness accounts and how people become, yep. like just because someone's confident and passionate and like completely convinced that they remember something a certain way does not mean that oh, they yeah. actually do. And a lot of people have been put to jail based on witness testimony that is when they get actual physical evidence turned out to be completely false so you know one of the stories she was talking about was someone who went to jail for something they didn't do and all the like terrible stuff that happened to them as a result and it just really freaked me out but um she she described memory that it works kind of like a wikipedia page so you can go in there and change it and so can other people and oh that's funny constructive memory Like, she first started studying it in the 70s, but asking certain questions, like leading questions, or even unintentionally leading questions, asking people to give you a detail, like, what was the guy's hair color, even if you don't say, oh, he's redhead, or whatever, they'll Mm -hmm. start to fill in the gaps in their memory with things, and then they'll remember it that way, sort of. Mm. Um, Or, you know, she asked people who watched a car accident video, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? And then she asked other people how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other. And all the people who answered smashed instead of hit predicted the cars had been going much faster. And they predicted or they remembered seeing broken glass at the scene of the accident, even though there was none and stuff like that. Wow. But one of the kind of really crazy things was, I don't know if you've, I just read an article about this the other day, but back in like the 80s and 90s, there was this huge thing going on in america where we thought there were all these satanic ritualistic cults around oh yeah satanic panic yeah so it was essentially a memory problem so people were going to therapy because they had depression or an eating disorder or you know some other thing that they were going to therapy to deal with and as part of the psychotherapy that they were using at the time um they were essentially planting these false memories unintentionally and without realizing it. And people were uncovering these repressed, what they thought were repressed memories of these crazy satanic oh, rituals no. that they had been a part of, or this like ritualistic abuse. Like this one um, woman vividly remembered how she had been forced into a pregnancy. And then the baby was cut out of her belly, even though <gasps> she had no scars or anything. What? And just like these stories that were like, so bizarre and completely unlikely but so many people were having them as a result of this therapy process that people were really believing that a lot of this was true people who were convinced that their parents had sexually abused them when they hadn't or um i was reading this one article about this couple who had run a preschool and then multiple kids started recovering these memories of like really crazy stuff with something like abuse like how can you prove that it didn't happen so i guess i mean just saying someone had sexual abuse i don't know if you can prove or disprove that necessarily completely but like the a lot of these stories were so over the top crazy like Mm. um extreme ritualistic abuse that you couldn't Mm. hide okay so they said 
They were drowning and dismembering babies in front of the children, killing dogs and cats in <gasps> front of the children, transporting the children to Mexico to be sexually abused by soldiers in the Mexican army, putting the children in a pool with sharks that ate babies, putting blood in their Kool-Aid, cutting the oh arms goodness. off a gorilla in a local park, forcing children to carry bones from bodies they dug up in the cemetery. Like, it's one thing to say, I've been abused. It's another thing to say... All, I don't know. I feel but, like... So there was all these stories they started coming out later. And some of them were like fantastical claims too about like the the reason this woman didn't have mm-hmm. any physical scars after this horrible thing had happened to her is because Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the Archangel Michael came down and healed her scars. But she completely remembers this and is... Oh, wow. You know, convinced... Adamant that it happened. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I guess in a lot of these cases, they ended up getting physical evidence down the road, like after some people have been in jail for 20, 30 years, and the only thing that put them away were these suddenly recovered memories that no one had until they went to therapy or, had you know. Therapy. I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy and kind of scary how easily it is to plant a fake memory too and this lady was even talking about are there times when we should be doing it like if you oh like to manipulate people from an ethical point of view a therapist should never do that but like knowing this is a way to plant memories like as a parent are there times when you should like if your child has a problem with obesity or something like if you plant a false memory that helps them lose weight is that ethical or not you know just like but and how easy it is to do it she was doing some tests and she would plant a false memory about you know this one time when you were a child you like ate dill pickles and got really sick like she'd be able to plant that memory in your head and then you wouldn't like dill pickles at a picnic as much as you used to or things like that but you could do it the opposite way too and like plant a really positive memory about how much how positive asparagus was and like now you love asparagus or you know Things like that. But it's just, it's kind of crazy to think of how unreliable your own memory is. And it's not even, like, sometimes it's, you can intentionally, I mean, like, you can use it to manipulate, but also it's just the way our brain works and tries to fill in gaps and remember, it kind of remembers things in general, not the specifics. So they also say, Mm -hmm. like, if you want to get, if you want to get the truth of something, just have someone tell you the story. Don't ask a lot of questions because as you ask questions, they'll fill in blanks that may not have even, like I said, like the the hair color question. Like if I'm like oh, so there's this guy walking down the street with his dog and blah, blah, blah. And if you were like, well, what was the guy's hair color? If I don't actually remember, but I'll suddenly think I remember that it was blonde, even if it wasn't, you know, and I'll, and then if you ask me later, I might say, oh yeah, there was this blonde guy walking down the street, you know, and you just kind of like build these memories. But yeah, a lot of what I was reading was kind of like the negative side of it. Like this. And I didn't do enough research on all the stuff that happened with the, the psychotherapy therapy and which how they prove some of this stuff was false or you know what amount of it was true but I think it is safe to say that there was a lot about these satanic cults and ritualistic abuse that was not based on fact not that all of it necessarily was false memories but definitely there's been enough proof now that it was mm-hmm. not it didn't actually happen but can you imagine like having a completely normal life and then having that horrific of a memory, yeah, giving being given a horrific memory that you're convinced no. is true, and then having people like tell you, I don't like it's just like such a weird experience. I actually want to research it a little bit more. I feel like even if ethically, even if you're trying to 
to do it to help someone, like planting a positive association. I still don't feel like it's right. It's still it's still like tampering with your brain. I don't like well, it. Well, I think ethically it's never right to intentionally do that. But I think it's also interesting to just think about how much it happens. Just unintentionally. Where it doesn't have yeah. any big effects and you don't mean to. And just kind of like, it's just interesting. How do we, like, I don't even know what I can trust in my own memories. <laughs> what is real and what isn't? I don't know. You know, like, like I have these like vivid memories that I probably don't have. When you hear stories all the time, you know, yes. and you think you like, remember it. But you knew you were too young to actually have that memory. Yeah. That I, I definitely have memories of that. Like very vivid ones where I know I'm just like, yeah, you weren't making memories at that age. Where did that come from? Yeah. Or I'll watch a home it was video. probably someone telling you a story. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. but I'll like remember it from as if I was myself in the home video, even though I don't remember it. I've just seen the home video or, you know, it's just kind of weird what you, the brain is fascinating and kind of terrifying. But yeah. So, um, Elizabeth Loftus's TED talk, I thought was really interesting for a brief overview on how unreliable your memory can be and some of the negative effects of that but um definitely could go deeper into a lot of those topics I love it I well um so the other thing that I really didn't like was I wish that we had gotten more of Akos's memories whenever he was uh first kidnapped because I felt like that was a huge missing portion like we got all of these Sira chapters one after the other and I felt like I got a good handle on who she was but then there was this, like, crucial time of his life when he was first kidnapped to when, I don't know, he was given to Sira to help her. And I feel like that was the period where he trains to become a fighter. He developed, he, he received his current gift. Like, so much stuff happened to him and we just completely missed it. And I also feel like, we barely even got to know him before that happened. Like, yeah. the, we got 34 pages of him, and I was still, like, really confused for most of that. Like, even while he was being... <laughs> like, I was still trying to understand the world and everything. I, I wasn't even sure if I liked it at the beginning, because I just... There was so much going on. Yeah. Or, you know, there was so much unfamiliar stuff going Terms. on. yeah. Um, and then we got... What was it? Like, 150 pages or something from Sierra's point of view. And it went all the way back to when she was six and kind of, like, let you grow up and understand her. And then went forward from there versus yeah Akos's memories were not like that (laughs) and I also feel like what happened to him during that time is probably really informing his character presently and so I feel like not having seen those crucial years we're missing out on understanding why he is acting the way he is because he's so understanding like he's he's like legit trying to help Sira he's not treating her like she's this monster yeah but he has this really real anger towards um Vass the steward which I mean mm -hmm. is clear that makes sense understandable he kidnapped him um but I just I wish I understood his motives a little bit more and I I don't like that we just get that kidnapping scene as the basis for why he's doing everything he's doing like a lot probably had to happen in three, what was it, like three, four years? I think it was three or two or three, yeah. Well, I'm also confused because I feel like the first few chapters that were from Akos's point of view, he was like the younger brother, the smaller brother, the shy, easily embarrassed, whatever mm-hmm. brother. And now he's like... The strong one. The one who, even, even just at the beginning of the kidnapping, he was like, don't worry, dad, you know, as his dad's dying, like, I'll bring home my brother. Mm-hmm. And... 
I just feel like the entire time, not not even just once his brothers started to lose his memories, but even before that, he's been like the strong one, the one who's capable of like reacting to the situation and all that. And I'm sort of like, wait, I'm confused. This doesn't fit. <laughs> Where did I didn't come know from? his character that well, but that was not the impression I got at the beginning. I agree. Um, so that's been kind of interesting too. And I'm curious to see his sister now. Like, oh, what's yeah. she doing? CC. Yeah. Did she ever go to mom and be like, mom, why the hell did you let that happen? Or what's going on with her? You know, is she trying to find her brothers or is she, I don't know. Well, isn't her fate to fall at the hands of the enemies? I forget now, maybe. There's... I honestly haven't thought about her much at all. <laughs> I know. There's, there's a lot of fates and there's a lot of gifts to keep track of. Yep. I'm also curious if, um, this is the other thing I was thinking, if Akos's gift is to block the current and the current is what's allowing them to exchange memories Mm -hmm. if he can somehow undo it with his gift or stop it with his gift i would assume so right because if you block the current and your gift is given through the current i feel like you could take anyone's gift away i would think so too so i'm just curious to see if that's but i wonder (laughs) once you switch but once you switch maybe he can't undo it maybe he can just prevent it from happening if he's physically there or something i don't know anyways we'll find out we'll see Let's, Let's keep reading. Finish book one. And we only have Ooh. two books this time. It's going to go fast. I know, a duology. I, you know how I feel about duologies. I yeah. love them a lot. And I actually, I did read something about Veronica Roth talking about this one being a duology. She originally was thinking a trilogy, I think because Divergent, she had written three. Um, but when she was doing like the big story arc, she wasn't seeing three clear mini story you know she was mm-hmm. like I didn't want a filler book basically you know how sometimes the second but so I'm really glad that she did that Me too. Um, so I think we'll have two like I think some stuff will definitely end at the end of this book you know like we'll get some clear conclusions but obviously some larger open storylines but it won't just be like oh I'm gonna stop here a lot of nonsense in between I hate when I hate yeah <laughs> good choice Veronica yeah, yeah. all right well it's my turn to tell you a joke this week okay I'm so excited I need a good laugh so you're gonna laugh really hard so last week or last time we read the illuminate files and we were talking a lot about artificial intelligence so Mm -hmm. my sister and i were um taking turns asking siri questions Uh and i asked her to tell me a joke (laughs) okay and so this is a joke from siri (laughs) i'm so excited already it's actually really good okay as (laughs) It's not even like you have to guess. It's just a really funny thing. Okay. As soon as someone has 5,000 bees, that's when you should marry them. That's how you know they're a keeper. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a good one. Good job, Siri. Well done. Well done. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. And we are also on Instagram and Facebook at MNK Talk YA. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. MNK Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.